Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Christopher Davidson. Chris is an academic and author of several books on the politics and foreign affairs of the Gulf states, and I'm pleased to say he's a regular contributor to the Arab Digest newsletter. His latest book, published by Hearst last year, is titled From Sheikhs to Sultanism. Today, we look at the impact in MENA of Russia's war in Ukraine. Chris, good to have you back in the podcast. Many thanks, Bill. It's a, it's a real pleasure, as, as always. Uh, before we get started on the impact of the war in MENA, can you first of all take us back to where Putin stood in the region before the 24th of February, before the invasion? What he'd accomplished in Syria, in Libya, in relations with the Gulf states and, and with Egypt? He played his hand well, hadn't he? Well, certainly, I think um, I think he gave the impression that he was willing to stand by uh, key allies, and in the context of the um, uh, Gulf states in particular, and, and the other authoritarian uh, MENA states, this was seen as something uh, having real value. Um, after all, many of these states, especially you know Saudi Arabia, Emirates, Kuwait, etc., still living with that nightmare scenario of what happened back in 1990 and, and, and recalling full well that it was only because of the US-led uh, effort that, that Kuwait is again a sovereign state. Um, but of course, in the intervening years, a great fear that the US and uh, other Western supposed security guarantors, despite uh, massive arms procurements and defence agreements, this fear that they weren't necessarily going to come to their rescue after all, you know, in 2019, we had those uh, Iran-linked uh, missile or drone attacks on, on key Saudi uh, Aramco infrastructure. We had uh, the United States and, and, and the Western powers supporting Saudi and the Emirates in Yemen, but clearly not supporting them quite enough to actually allow those states to achieve a solid victory. But yet, on the other hand, we have uh, Bashar al-Assad's regime by 2012-2013 appearing to be on its absolute last legs. And clearly with that Russian intervention, the tables having been turned. So in that sense, we had we had these Arab states uh, nominally nominally on the side uh, of the Syrian uh, Syrian opposition in, in, in Qatar's case and, and Saudi's case uh, before MBS at least, uh, providing weapons to the Syrian opposition as well. But in many ways, an actual grudging respect of what Putin had actually done and, and the kind of security guarantee they really feel they want uh, moving forward. A foreign power, superpower, if we can, if we can possibly call Russia that anymore, uh, actually willing to turn up and, and help them certainly counts for a lot. We have to remember as well uh, in, this, in this Syrian context of, of the Russians arriving that in Saudi Arabia, uh, by 2015-2016, we'd already effectively had regime change in the form of MBS. And he, he had not involved himself uh, in Syria in the way that uh, Bandar bin Sultan's intelligence agencies uh, had, had before him. Likewise, MBZ down in Abu Dhabi uh, may have offered nominal support to the Syrian uh, National Council and, 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 and so on, but he had not... He had not become as involved in the Syrian war as, as Qatar, Kuwait, etc. Uh, had. So in that sense, they, they were uh, better positioned, I think, than, than other Arab states to cosy up to Russia much quicker uh, when the tables seemed to turn. And for Putin, he really did not have to invest 
a great deal of military hardware into turning the tide in Syria. In Libya, he used the Wagner mercenary group. Uh, it, it really didn't come at, at a very heavy military cost, particularly when you look at what's going on to the uh, Russian military now in Ukraine. Uh, yes, I think this is a, this is a key difference. In, in the Ukraine conflict, Putin has less of a, of a buffer here. He's had to actually use as, as uh, frontline troops or cannon fodder, if you like, uh, actual units of the, of the Russian military, including, as, as we're led to believe, young conscripts. Uh, and that, of course, has a significant political cost uh, uh, to Putin back at home in Moscow. Uh, whereas in the Arab world, uh, he's had significant buffers. In, in, in Libyan war, he's been able to uh, more readily deploy uh, mercenaries. Uh, in Syria, although, of course, Russians were, were certainly present uh, on, on, on the battlefield, uh, there were the Syrian army frontline troops. There were uh, Hezbollah units as well coming from, from Lebanon and, you know, often just up across the hillside, uh, there were often uh, Iranian uh, uh, units too. So in that sense, the Russian forces didn't, didn't have to feel the, the brunt of the conflict uh, in the Arab world uh, in quite the same way they are in, in, in Ukraine today. The war comes along and in the West, it's seen as an attack by an authoritarian regime on a democracy. How do you think Putin's fellow authoritarians in MENA view it? Yeah, here he, I think the, the fellow authoritarians uh, see this as uh, Putin having to act upon a red line he's already drawn. Uh, in this case, uh, non-NATO membership for Ukraine, which is a state bordering Russia. You know, I think um, uh, Russia has, has repeatedly made this is clear that it will not accept any more states on its border, of course, beyond the Baltic ones now, joining uh, a military alliance, uh, in this case, a pro-Western military alliance. So as far as they can see, it again fits into this narrative of Putin standing by his word, even if that requires full-blown military intervention. So I think it's, it's more about that than, than democracy or modes of governance in this case. But they do share that authoritarian ideology. Yeah, I think I think in this case uh, they see they see authoritarian types of uh, regime today as being more willing to directly involve themselves uh, militarily. They see the the Western powers, the old liberal democracies, as being more willing to uh, sit back uh, and uh, use economic warfare, electronic warfare including the sanctions we've seen and the various other measures. Uh, and if need be, their on-the-ground forces are uh, safely a few steps removed, uh, often using uh, the forces of other countries uh, to do their work for them by providing missiles and, and weapons in their hand. And I think that's the, that's the key difference um, the, the Arab autocrats uh, have in their mind, uh, that in this case, this is an authoritarian state, much like theirs, has many similarities with theirs, uh, willing to act militarily when needed. Mm. The war has created huge economic wins for energy producers. Uh, today, I think the price of oil has come down a little bit, uh, but it's above $100 a barrel. Uh, in the short term, what does it mean for these uh, MENA states, particularly the Gulf states? Yes, yeah, certainly this is, this is viewed as a short-term or perhaps even temporary windfall. It gives them a chance to balance their books uh, better than any time they've had since about 2014, before the oil price crash then, uh, in the wake of the US shale revolution. Perhaps most importantly, 
It gives them a, a, a bit of a breather in terms of having to repeatedly go back to the international bond markets, uh, if you, as, as you are aware. Uh, most of these states, most notably Saudi Arabia, are engaging on very costly post-oil diversification plans, Vision 2030 in its case, which requires a lot of expensive infrastructure to be built. And this, this, gives, them, this gives them a bit more uh, opportunity to actually meet those goals of those uh, medium and long-term diversification visions. Uh, if we look at the more indigent of the, of the, uh, of the Gulf states, uh, Bahrain, for example, uh, it gives it at least a year, possibly two years, before it has to go back cap in hand to wealthier neighbours, such as Saudi and the Emirates and Kuwait. This is very important, of course, because we have a new a new uh, prime minister in the form of the crown prince who doesn't want to become too uh, enmeshed with those neighbours. Uh, he wants uh, an opportunity to do things his way uh, at this uh, crucial juncture. Uh, if you recall, back in back in 2018, Bahrain received that fiscal balance package uh, from its neighbours, which was supposed to last for several years, uh, but it had blown through it all by the time the COVID-19 pandemic uh, began. Um, in terms of other short-term wins, of course, it's not just about it's not just about energy. Uh, it's also about uh, attracting more of the the grey economy, the Russian grey economy, and grey economies in other states that are watching the Ukraine crisis closely. Attracting those to the Gulf, we've seen all of these private jets under sanctions flying off, unsurprisingly, to the Gulf states, most notably uh, most notably uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi in 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 the UAE. We've had Russian um, real estate investment go through the roof uh, in the Gulf states as well as a result. And, and you know, they've benefited greatly from this. This is adding to their prospects for uh, uh, post-oil diversification. This grey economy, of course, is, is enormous in Russia, in, in Eastern Europe and the Central Asian states. The Western uh, states, with their response to the Ukraine crisis, especially in the form of sanctions and all of the other pressure, uh, have proven once again that they're not a reliable home for grey economy assets, whereas countries such as the UAE uh, have been making hay while the sun shines here. They've been doing everything they can to send out a signal that they are grey economy friendly. Yes, that's a very, very interesting development. Um, and as you say, the the private jets are arriving and no doubt some rather large super yachts will be heading uh, to Dubai and other places in the Gulf as well, if they haven't already. But what about the medium and, and the longer term? The um, a situation of very high oil prices down the road, that's not helpful. Yes, I think, I think in the medium to long term, the, uh, the technocrats in, in, in charge of um, oil policy and economic planning in these Gulf states, uh, perhaps more so than previous generations uh, of, of Gulf governments, are savvy enough to to see this as a as a short term uh, phenomenon. Uh, they know what they need to do, and they shouldn't let this be a distraction. Uh, as as we said, you know, this is being, as far as I'm aware, in the Gulf, being treated strictly as a very short term windfall. Uh, the big plans need to keep forging ahead. Uh, also, of course, they see it as a threat. I know that sounds counterintuitive, given that the money's rolling in for at, at the moment. But volatility in oil prices, whether down or up, is 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 a is a threat and a challenge for these states. They don't like volatility. Uh, the high prices at the moment, and given what's happening with potential interruptions to Russian supplies, for example, if anything, will be accelerating energy self-sufficiency 
in most notably the western the western economies you know we'll all be getting and driving electric cars much sooner uh, germany will be having probably three days a week on renew renewable energy alone soon rather than its current one and a half days um this means that for the, the remaining oil and gas uh, exports of the Gulf states, however many years or decades that might be, they're uncomfortable with this because it means they're going to end up with even more eggs than currently uh, in the basket with regards to selling to, to the Asian economies, which, uh, as, we, as we, of course, are, are well aware, there's, of course, a substantial consensus that the Asian economies, China, South Korea, Japan, etc., despite being these major oil and gas customers of the Gulf for many years into the future are never really going to uh, uh, take on the role of, of ultimate uh, security uh, guarantors. In the medium to long term as well, though, I think they see, they see some vindication in the Gulf, particularly in, in, in Bahrain and the UAE, uh, with this, uh, as we talked about, this grey economy opportunity. Uh, post-oil opportunity. I realise it's not being discussed very often in, in, in academic circles. You know, we're all supposed to talk about the export-oriented in industrialization, the manufacturing sector, tourism, etc. But it's also uh, this attraction of uh, assets, money laundering uh, from around the world, uh, which is huge. It's no surprise that in Bahrain, uh, uh, there's an enormous uh, nascent Bitcoin uh, industry, cryptocurrencies uh, licensed uh, by the central bank there. Uh, the UAE is following, following suit. Uh, and I think, you know, they've, they've placed themselves well as a, as a Bitcoin and cryptocurrency friendly uh, marketplace. You know, after all, if you've got cryptocurrency and you're, and, and, and you're Russian, you've pretty much got away unscathed from the recent sanctions and conflict. And where are you going to spend that currency? Well, you're more likely to spend it in the Gulf states, I think, uh, than places like uh, El Salvador or, or Bulgaria, which uh, up until, until now have been the only real states that have uh, put themselves on the map with cryptocurrency spending. Um, so in that sense, I think they, uh, they, feel, they feel vindicated. They've taken a punt on the future and the future is turning out as they expected. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. As you say, the Bitcoin side of the story. But, but there's another side of the story, and that's commodity prices, wheat, other grains, sunflower oil and the like, the prices are going through the roof. What does that mean for stressed economies, not these wealthy Gulf economies, but the stressed economies in the region? Yes, I think this is a, this is a key question, Mark. Uh, there's little research being done on this. It's very hard to get a handle on what exactly the rate of inflation is in many of these Arab states, especially ones with big populations, as you mentioned, like, like Egypt, Algeria and so on. You know, in, 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 in Europe, uh, we may be having consumer um, consumer price index inflation in some states of, you know, close to 10% now. And that's really hurting when it comes down to a trip trip to the supermarket. This, this I, I suspect, is, is a much uh, bigger uh, increase in, in basic commodities and foodstuffs in, in the Arab states, especially those, of course, that are, that are net food and, and commodity importers. Uh, whether that will lead to um, renewed political instability, uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, obviously, back in, back in 2010, 2011, it was a key driver of the instability in, in Egypt and Tunisia and elsewhere. The people, of course, going onto the streets, not only the trade unions, the liberals, but also the people who just simply couldn't make uh, ends meet. I suspect, though, that because we're still only a decade uh, on from those Arab Spring uprisings, which ultimately led next to nowhere, there's still considerable 
protest fatigue uh, amongst many of these populations. Um, the protests are still within living memory. It's still essentially the same generation involved. So I'm not sure it will, it will be uh, the same sort of tinderbox it was a decade ago. Yes, because uh, I can recall being in Cairo in late 2008 uh, and, and, and the bread protests and uh, riots had, had begun at that point, And that was a, a tremor, if you will, that uh, played out in, in 2011. But you don't think there's any possibility of an Arab Spring 2.0? I think it's unlikely at this stage. Uh, I think it would need a significant uh, catalyst beyond food prices to to spark something like that. I think there would need to be a series of outrageous incidents, for example, police brutality, something like that. But again, circling back to this this key point, I think we're still we're still in a phase of recovery from the last round of uh, protests, and it would take an enormous lot a lot, I think, to get people back on the streets, risking life and limb. Once again, yes, and certainly uh, in Egypt, uh, Sisi's regime has become extremely repressive, much more so than than Mubarak. Yes, I think this clearly this clearly factors into it as well that the Egyptian regime isn't the same uh, as it was back in back in two thousand and ten. In fact, my last ever visit to Egypt was a couple of months before the the protests began in late in late two thousand and ten, and you know, people were joking around at Mubarak's expense in restaurants, in, 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 in cafes. It didn't have the feel, uh, I imagine, uh, of Sisi's Egypt today, which is uh, much closer to a sort of um, uh, repressive police state than, uh, than Egypt was back then. Uh, and that, you know, that, that again is a factor in putting people off, uh, taking up arms or even peaceful resistance. I think we all we all know uh, if there was another Tahrir Square style uh, sit-in or, or occupation, I think we all know exactly how that would be dealt with uh, today. There would be no no mercy, no prisoners taken. Mm. Looking at uh, America, Joe Biden asked the Saudis and the Emiratis uh, to use their clout to put more oil into the market, and he's been rebuffed in ways that one simply couldn't have foreseen dismissively, uh, contemptuously, one one could say, I'm thinking of MBS's comments in that recent Atlantic profile. Also, MBZ has been reportedly very, very cross with the Americans and uh, refused to take a call, apparently, from, from Biden. D- does this not speak to a sense in the region of America's growing impotence? And if so, what are the geopolitical implications? Well, the first part of that question, um, certainly I think there's been a media war going on here. And I think the the Gulf states involved uh, have been uh, quite adept at uh, manipulating it this time round. For example, when uh, when uh, the United States was 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 pressing and and the UK, for that matter, were were pressing the Saudis and the Emiratis to uh, increase their oil production to offset, of course, the potential lack of Russian supplies and, and stabilize the market. We had uh, a number of uh, things happening at exactly the same time, which were very embarrassing for visiting Western officials. The mass executions in Saudi Arabia, for example, 81. And then when Boris Johnson visited another three on the day he was there. And then, of course, we have the Emiratis on the day after uh, uh, sacking uh, 800 British employees of, of P&O down in Dover. And this, you know, I think this allowed them to retain some sort of face 
distracting from the bottom line, which was that they'd agreed to the US and British uh, requests to increase their oil production. And in this sense, it all to do, I think, with the type of regimes that now exist in Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. You see, what they've done in the last few weeks with regards to oil production is not what their forefathers or foruncles in MBS's case did uh, back in the 1970s. Now they're, you know, they're more paper tigers in many ways. Uh, these are relatively um, uh, petty responses uh, to Western requests, but they've been enough in the media to generate a sense that they're still standing on their feet, that they retain their, their populist hard man image. And crucially, it ties into this new strain of uh, localised nationalism, uh, hyper-nationalism we see in Saudi Arabia and the, the Emirates revolving around their de facto uh, rulers. Um, after all, you know, they've been unable to meaningfully stand up to the West on this matter. Uh, I realise, of course, the UAE is, is making it clear that they have this uh, uh, oil capacity and they want to use it. Uh, but essentially, they've, they've submitted to a Western request. Uh, and everything else has been has been an attempt to uh, paper over that. Um, with regards to America's uh, growing impotence, you know, I think this is a this is a um, an opportunity for for pause. I don't think we should go too far uh, down that line just yet. I think it's more about America's uh, increasing uh, disinterest in the Gulf and the Middle East region. Uh, given America's own increasing self-sufficiency with regards to uh, energy. So it's less about America being being impotent militarily uh, and economically and more about America just simply having less interest in um, uh, supporting their partners, economic and security partners in the region. I just want to clarify something here, Chris. Uh, it's, it's my understanding that the Emiratis and the Saudis are not increasing dramatically the amount of oil that they're putting into the market. Are you saying that they are doing this? I think they are. Um, I think behind the scenes, that's what's happening. And I think that's being reflected uh, in the international oil prices at the moment. You know, they should have, over the past couple of weeks, they should have rocketed. Yes, they went up, but they didn't rocket up. I think this is certainly, uh, certainly some uh, agreements have been made uh, behind the scenes. And I think there's been a, a very robust media war being fought that has allowed uh, the governments in Saudi Arabia and the Emirates in particular to, to save some face here. So that's interesting. So you think that, that behind the scenes, in fact, they are putting more oil into the market and uh, this is really their response to the concern that prices not drive too high. Yes, as, as we discussed, um, although the sort of standard narrative is that they're enjoying a windfall and this is a good thing for, for oil producers, I, I, I've always believed they fear, they fear, vol fear volatility more than anything, especially as they're trying to uh, plan ahead and budget uh, in the medium and long term for these very ambitious uh, and costly uh, development programs. The, uh, the war has also served to draw the Israelis ever closer to Arab states who shared their views about Iran and their wish not to get on the wrong side of Russia. Do you think this is emboldening Putin and stiffening his resolve to keep the war going until he gets what he wants? Well, I think I think I think it's certainly received in Russia as another sign that supposed or, or, or perceived uh, U.S. partners or, or, or allies, um, in this case in the MENA region, are not fully condemning uh, Russia's actions and have a vested interest in Russia actually um, succeeding in its ambitions in, in this case. 
um, more, more broadly, a growing sense that the, there are alternative future security arrangements uh, and economic arrangements that, that can exist uh, in the MENA and elsewhere uh, that don't involve the United States uh, or the other Western powers. Uh, and I think as far as the, the uh, um, Israelis are concerned, as far as the uh, Gulf autocrats, Egypt and so on, I think this, the, 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 the latest episode over the past few weeks is, is another layer of evidence pointing to that. Hmm. Uh, many analysts are arguing that Putin has already lost his war, but, but I'm wondering if from the perspective of uh, CC and MBZ and MBS, it can be seen from the exact opposite. For them, the war is a win, regardless of the fate of Ukraine and the damage to Russia's economy. Uh, well, yes, I would. I would take perhaps a, a slightly different perspective to most of the mainstream uh, narrative on this. Uh, I think in in these uh, meaner authoritarian states, uh, they don't see it as a as, as a loss for Putin, at least not not thus far. Uh, I think you know, there's no doubt uh, they are disappointed with the uh, apparent uh, failure of the enormous and well-equipped Russian military to achieve its goals. I think, you know, they had fully expected when this began that uh, the Russian tanks would have rolled into Kiev within a couple of days and that the Zelensky government would have would have uh, rolled over and submitted to all of its um, uh, requests. So I think there's no doubt there's been that level of uh, disappointment. But I think there's a, there's a growing savviness in these uh, MENA authoritarian states of how of how the world works now um, and particular how superpower relations work. Uh, I think they're well aware that there's much more to what's been going on uh, in Ukraine than the um, international media's uh, consensus. I think they, they, they feel that uh, the Russian camp is getting somewhere here. Um, I think they, uh, they feel that if Russia can uh, extricate itself from this conflict with some sort of promise or guarantee from Ukraine that it won't join NATO uh, and that Russia uh, perhaps not only gets to hold on to the Crimea, uh, but also formalises or rather normalises its occupation of the eastern provinces of Ukraine, uh, then that overall is a victory. After all, I think the Gulf states, CC and so on, um, they... They know how this war is playing out on the ground in Ukraine. These these counterattacks or reversals that were being told about in Ukraine, where the Ukrainian military and, and, and guerrillas are, are supposedly pushing back the Russians. They're well aware this is due to Western missiles, probably trainers, maybe intelligence operatives being on the ground in Ukraine. And in that sense, America and the West are fighting Russia uh, at the moment as they have done in many other conflicts, uh, but with a, a layer of plausible deniability. Um, and in this sense, this is, this is a, a, an explanation uh, for Russia's military struggles. But ultimately, Russia is resisting against uh, NATO expansion uh, and thus far appears to be succeeding in that ob- with, with, that, uh, with that objective. Well, this is going to be very interesting to watch, Chris, uh, particularly uh, in the MENA region, I think. Um, and you've made some very interesting and thoughtful points. So I, I thank you. I thank you again for that. Many thanks, Bill. It was a, a real pleasure as always. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Christopher Davidson. His latest book, From Shakes to Sultanism, is published by Hearst 
and I highly recommend it. We welcome your comments. It's been two years since we launched the podcast, and our audience has grown tenfold to more than 4,500 listeners a month. So a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, or other audio platforms. In addition to our podcast, the Arab Digest Daily Newsletter features the very best of main analysts, analysts like Chris. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.